N95 uh, and those sorts will help uh, and have help you be less affected. Um, with pepper spray, because it's oil-based rather than an aerosolized particulate, uh, just pat avoiding getting it on your skin is great. A build cap like this, you can turn your head down if you see the spray coming, so your hat catches it rather than your kisser. Um, similarly, uh, we talk about bandanas, like, yeah, so any covering over the face is going to give you a little bit of more filtration or protection from these than a bare face. Uh, and hopefully right now, everyone's wearing their masks already. Um, so uh, uh, working for that uh, actual respirator or full face respirator with the organic paper cartridges is, is the, a key. A note on gas masks, gas masks tend to be more expensive and harder to find their filter cartridges. Also, civilian gas masks usually have uh, glass for the eyelets, which can be shattered by an impact round and potentially send glass shards into the eyes. So if you're going to get a gas mask, make sure it's military grade or for uh, at the very least, tape those lenses inside and out with packaging tape. Uh, so if it does get an impact, it's less likely to have shards or splinters. Someone asked about the role of history taking in the patient encounter, the initial patient encounter. And um, yes, of course, we should be taking um, just a brief history to know if there are any pre-existing conditions that might impact how that person is responding. Like, are they diabetic? Do they have asthma? Um, are they allergic to any medications? So those kinds of basic um, history taking skills are, are super important in any, in any patient encounter. We would assume that you would translate it here. Yep. Uh, uh, best practices for moving injured comrades from danger uh, to safety in the context of possible C-spine injuries and skull fractures. Um, so so uh, what we have to move these folks, um, yeah, we're, we've gotten to a, a, a potential disability rather than a probable death situation in the critical uh, uh, injury of our patients. And, uh, EMS personnel are, are a lot more well-versed in this already. The, uh, if you're wilderness trained, you get trained on what's called beaming, which is kind of people standing across from each other and putting their arms on each other like this to make squares. Uh, um, so we can, or linking arms underneath the patient so we can move them in a kind of group basket. Um, I would recommend folks, if they're interested in this, especially if you find local street medics, to ask for training on lift and carry. Uh, these are super important. EMS personnel, uh, especially search and rescue folks, will know some of these wilderness uh, uh, things. Banners, if there's a really good, solid, talk, like strong banner, you can like put someone in a banner uh, and have it taught like a scoop stretcher. Uh, 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 that is used in a lot of places around the world. Um, so especially if it's still got its holes on it, you could potentially move someone quite well. So, uh, it's important that, you know, whoever is maintaining uh, spinal immobilization at the head is the one directing all the movements, all the lifts. You know, uh, if you're doing these things, you want to be super careful uh, uh, that you're communicating well so you don't drop that patient. Uh, legal implications for licensure if arrested, that's, that's going to depend on your licensing board and which state you're in. I, as an EMT, uh, when I was still an EMT, uh, uh, 
never had any issue with the, the misdemeanor arrests I, I've taken. Uh, the only times I've been arrested, uh, where I've been medicating, I've beat all those charges. Um, I've been both kept on staff and hired on with open cases. Um, I know plenty of nurses who have gotten arrested. Uh, again, uh, most of the time, if it's not a crime of moral turpitude, you're not stealing someone, uh, stealing from someone, you're not abusing, you know, children or geriatric folks or domestic partners. There's most of those, if you're not at the felony level, uh, uh, you might have to write, but uh, I've never known of folks. Um, I mean, I have a friend who's an EMT who got a blocking an emergency vehicles charge, medicating folks who blockaded a highway. He's working as an EMT. He got hired as an EMT with a felony blocking emergency vehicles charge. Um, so it, it really depends on your your uh, uh, state licensure board, be that medical board, nursing board, um, DOT if you're an EMT. Uh, and so you're going to have to really check your own uh, licensure boards and state regulations. So I see a question about an opto follow-up for tear gas exposure. Um, so the symptoms of tear gas exposure, if you're not, um, so if you're not re-inoculating your, like re-exposing the eyes, is about 20 minutes. Um, so we would not expect, you can have some chemical irritation from it um, that can last a little longer. But I would say if it's lasting for in the day, um, in, for days, that you should absolutely get checked. Um, by an ophthalmologist, by an eye expert. Um, I'm seeing a number of questions about where do we get our gear, various types of gear. There are lots of street medics where uh, uh, medical professionals or folks do a lot of uh, harm reduction work. Um, so some of us kind of glean uh, uh, excesses from places that we work. Um, when I used to be a, a field phlebotomist, they'd give me a box, whole box of you know, alcohol pads and, and gauze pads for, for one remote visit. Um, so there's a lot of waste in healthcare that can be gleaned. Uh, Narcan, you know. I'm going to pause here. looks like we're out of time. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'll be continuing to play this. Uh, so if you happen to be listening live, just stay tuned. And, uh, yeah, there happens to be a fire actually out on Potrero. In Potrero, um, the... SFGate has reported uh, Potrero Hill uh, starting around 1.27 p.m. Evacuation to Potrero Hill. Um, emergency alert uh, on the block of, du on the 100, 200, 300 block of Dakota, as well as the 1500, 1600 block of Dakota as well. And folks are advised to evacuate the residents immediately. Uh, fire updates. Firefighters appear to be gaining the upper hand in the battle against brush fire, and they have aerial coverage on Pacific Avenue. So, okay, so that's that. Um, yeah, gonna, uh, let's see. How about um, play some more music, uh, but stick around. I'll be back. Gonna take a bit of a break, and then we'll be back with more. Uh, thanks so much for tuning in. A lot going on, and thanks for all the folks out there. So, so many problems.
three already. So usually uh, uh, a lot of street medics will be tapped into uh, harm reduction circles. And so if we're going to be carrying Narcan, we get it from where everyone else gets it, whatever our local harm reduction or health department is able to uh, distribute. Um, as far as if there are any organizations that hope to provide supplies, um, there aren't really that I'm aware of. Uh, uh, we tend to do our own fundraising when we do trainings, um, especially if it's like for college and university groups, we try to get uh, more than our base expenses covered so we can put money back to our collective supplies. Uh, a lot of y'all may have better opportunities with your medical licensure to set up um, accounts with medical supply companies. Uh, and oftentimes you can negotiate deals on stuff and then you can do group ordering. A lot of times if you're uh, working with a collective, you can pull resources. You know, some of these things only come in huge amounts uh, or you need to buy them in larger amounts to uh, uh, get a good deal. Uh, but if you have 10 people who all pitched in 25 bucks, you know, $250 of first aid supplies can, can outfit, you know, 10 to a dozen medics pretty well. Um, so, so we just kind of have to figure out, you have fundraising shows, we, you know, we do what we can. I saw uh, Target got looted and there was donations afterwards to uh, on-the-ground medics or something. So, you know, the supplies come like in disasters through donations wherever they're so um, see here, one issue that um, people are just asking about CS gas and how we prepare, um, one, what, what we can do. I think as a medical community, we could really raise our voices here about eliminating CS gas against civilians in the United States. Um, it's dangerous. It's a chemical weapon that's outlawed by the Geneva Convention. Um, and it's gonna make things worse during COVID. So if um, anyone is down for Following up with Dr. Peter Chen Hong here at UCSF, um, he wrote an excellent letter. We should um, amplify that and um, and make that move as a medical community. Okay, um, Noah, can you answer this one? Best practices for moving an injured person, like a ceasefire injury, um, from the front line to the back lines. Final and yeah, I did just speak to that a little bit, but yeah, really, arguably, the best answer is very careful. Um, we've seen uh, numerous instances this past week and historically, uh, um, y'all there in the Bay Area, Scott Olson, when he was shot in the head close range with a, a tear gas canister that cracked his skull, uh, the initial caregivers who rushed to him, police threw those sting balls at them to drive them away and injure him further. Um, so, so, you know, uh, I recommend you you uh, take the time to, to speak with EMS personnel or wilderness trained folks about uh, lifts and carries and how those lifts and carries are trained and taught in the field uh, and practice those, especially if you're getting together with a group, it's a great time to practice moving someone when the person is only playing in pain. Yeah, and so also this is, a, you know, because the situation is dynamic, you can leave that person stabilized. Like I said, EMS will come once the protest has moved if there's not the constant threat of violence, um, if that person can be left there still and protected um, until EMS can come with a spinal immobilizing board, um, that's also a, a, a reasonable way of addressing that. Yeah, this may very well be a, a situation where you're choosing to stay and keep your patient in spinal immobilization 
while a police line advance is possibly over yet? Yeah, this is a real question that you have to go back to your situational awareness and scene assessment, see how the police have been behaving. Uh, have they just been uh, 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 relatively peaceably arresting people or just sitting in front of their advancing police line while everyone else is dispersing? Or are they kicking the shit out of those people? You know, you got to decide what's going to be potentially safer for your patient who has a potential mechanism of injury for a spinal injury. Is it going to be safer for you to try and speak to the fact that y'all are medics, that this patient can't be moved without EMS, and hope the police kind of just move around you and, like, y'all are detained, but y'all are still allowed to keep that patient? If the police have been acting in such an irresponsible way uh, that it is likely safer to try and move that patient with the utmost care and precautions to a safer venue where uh, uh, they can get con continuity of care. So with that, we're going to wrap it up and say thank you to everybody. There's a lot of questions that we didn't have a chance to answer. Um, please follow the Do No Harm Coalition on Twitter at Do No Harm UCSF. Um, we're online as well, donoharmcoalition.org. We'll be releasing the justice study um, findings there. We'll be releasing, we'll upload this PDF there with active hyperlinks um, and all the um, citations that we can stick in there for you. Um, and I just want to thank Noah um, and Dorothy and Mike, our tech support, and UCSF for helping us to host this and get the word out. And yes, um, please share this when this video is out. Please share it if you think it can be useful to people in your community to help um, organize to protect the safety of our people. Uh, and I'm at Noah for Health on Twitter. Uh, I help ampli amplify a lot of the struggle going on out there in the streets there. Um, and I'd just like to say a quick spectrum. Uh, thank you for all of you. Uh, uh, took the time to attend this and are, are uh, even considering to go out and break the bystander syndrome uh, and provide care during these very very dire circumstances. All right, thank you so much. Thank you. Draw the line, let me welcome you close to all the folks who know Obama, so the people of hope gave the money to suckers while our community still poor. Withdrew the troops, but started another war, colonizing, terrorizing, creating the oil crisis, so they can make a killing on food and gas prices. Prisons are spinning, they trying to lock up the future. Militarized borders and control the computers. Wanna scoop it up the music that ain't healthy for the shortest. Privatizing schools and policemen in the homes can't be gone without a weapon. Buy some people.
in the shakers, and the ex handy drinkers, the non smokers, the health advocates, the non voters, the young bloods in the hood training like soldiers. I'm on the side of the tracks with the hood guards, the little child at the color inside the margins. I don't ride the fence, I cultivate my strength, cause if it ain't in my power, it don't make sense. I've been down, I'm going down since being a piece of brown pride, and black power make coffee cheap. A OG told the truth, battle fires me. Good morning, everybody. Um, thank you for joining us today. My name is Dr. Lupa Maria, and I'm speaking to you today from um, the territory of Huchin, Ohlone Territory, what is now called Oakland, California, what was Huchin for several thousand years here. I just wanted to acknowledge my ancestors and my ancestors and the ancestors of this land um, for providing me all I need to do this um, very important work that is ahead of us today. I am an Associate Professor of Medicine at UCSF in the Division of Hospital Medicine. I wanted to thank UCSF for their support today for um, putting together the platform to allow us to share this important work. Um, and I'm also a, a musician um, who has been deeply involved in 
um, social struggles around the world with my music, and that has allowed me a really unique opportunity to translate my clinical skills into direct action. I'm going to introduce my friend here, Noah. Hiya. Hello. Uh, my name is Noah Morris. I'm coming from occupied Tupelo and Monacan territory uh, in South Central Appalachia. Um, I am a street medic of just shy of 20 years, uh, a retired EMT of 14 years, and presently uh, practicing acupuncture. So we do this work today um, in the spirit of lifting the lives of those who have passed from police violence and their families. Um, specifically here in the Bay Area, I just want to say the names of um, these individuals who have really shaped my life and understanding as a physician um, and to broaden my scope of healing as we're gonna talk about today. Um, so we have Alex Nieto, we have Oscar Grant, Luis Gongorapat, Maria Woods, Salim Tyndall, Jessica Nelson Williams. There are so many um, who have died of police violence um, around our country and in the legacy of um, colonial violence um, since the occupation of this land. And so it's important to situate this, what we're experiencing today in this historical context so we can understand how to best move forward. So when people use their bodies as tools um, of social change, our act as accompaniment as healthcare professionals can support and protect those bodies as they stand up for their right to health and justice. We will be discussing today how to translate your valuable clinical skills from the arena where you are comfortable to the place of intense suffering right now, which is our society. So we are all healers, and we will be talking about how to amplify the healing work that we do. When we bring our professional gravitas and skills to the streets, we are moving the needle more urgently to alleviate the intense social malaise caused by racist police violence. Uh, modern day street medic, we, uh, we trace our history back to uh, 1936 and the American Medical Bureau that was organized by Dr. Edward Barson. See, these included doctors, dentists, nurses, ambulance drivers who joined the Lincoln Brigade who deployed in solidarity uh, with Republican Spain. Uh, fast forward, you see us turning up at uh, the uprising at Stonewall. You know, we have medic elders who uh, provided support during the Wounded Knee occupation. Um, even one who uh, was shot during that occupation. Uh, you know, continuing forward, we were instrumental in supporting uh, ACT UP as well as other organizations uh, in their direct action campaign. Uh, and fast forward and even further, we were the founders of the Common Ground Health Clinic in New Orleans, the first civilian run clinic operated after uh, Hurricane Katrina, which is still in operation as a federally qualified health clinic. Uh, presently, we see street medics uh, around the world uh, working in alliance with uh, uh, movements fighting for greater egalitarian societies. Presently, medics around the country are helping and treating grievous injuries uh, in the wake of the George Floyd uprising. So today, um, we're going to run through these objectives, but I also just want to let you know, we have the Q&A active for everybody. We have, um, we had over 5,000 people respond for this training. 
we will be recording this and um, uploading it to the Do No Harm Coalition uh, YouTube channel. So subscribe there if you're interested, you'll get notified when it's uploaded in the coming days. We want this information shared widely. We will be um, having a 30 minute Q&A session at the end. Um, we have Mike Sweeney working with us, um, who is um, helping us, another Do No Harm Coalition member who's gonna help us go through the questions. So your questions will get answered. Thank you for participating. So today what we wanna do is um, have you walk away understanding that police violence is a public health crisis. We want you to learn how to prepare for street medic work and how to safely assess the field and act in a way that is safe for yourself and your patients. To become familiar with police weaponry um, and common injuries that you'll see and to grow the community of engaged professionals, um, healthcare professionals who are committed to changing the structures that are um, injuring our patients. We are assuming that your BLS and first aid um, like trained and we won't be covering these things. We're also assuming that you have some level of clinical skill that you're engaged in clinical work. Um, so we are going to be um, working to translate your skills into a different setting. As an overview of our presentation, first we'll discuss the data around police violence and we'll talk about preparation for street medicine, um, a very important topic of situational awareness. Then we'll take a five minute break while, um, where I'll share some of my music with you um, we'll come back and discuss police weapons and common injury patterns um, and how you can care for yourself after um, your service, as well as share some other resources and then open it up to a Q&A. So in um, 2018, the American Public Health Association declared um, law enforcement violence as a public health threat. Not only is it um, a threat to the person who experiences the violence, but to the people who witness it and um, the communities that endure it, um, as well as what we're seeing right now, the erosion of civic structures um, when, the, um, when the contract of good governance was violated um, by this violence. Um, this data I'm sharing right now is from Mapping Police Violence, which is an excellent website that's culling um, data around um, the country right now. Um, and as you can see, there were only 27 days in 2019 where the police did not kill somebody. Um, in spite of all the dialogue and all of the press and all the um, attempts at reformations of police departments, we see that there has been very little that has moved the needle on the number of people that are killed by police. When I look at this graph, I think not only again of the individual, but the ripple effect that that um, killed individual had um, the murder has on the entire community and the health of that community. Again, from mapping police violence, we see here this in prior years, um, the, these disparities were even more intense, um, but we see here that police um, are more likely to kill, three times more likely to kill a black person um, than a white person. Um, and you can also see that it's not about, you know, how violent your city is. So this, this data here shows that regardless of how, um, how violent, like even extremely violent cities have lower police um, killing rates compared to um, maybe less violent cities. So it's about the culture of um, the police department. There are several police departments around our country that kill black men at higher rates than the US murder rate. This is alarming. This um, study came out of Michigan um, last year, which showed that the risk of being killed by police, um, use of force in the United States 
and was the sixth leading cause of death for young black men. So just black men in their 20s and 30s, um, which is highly alarming. They also showed that the lifetime risk um, of being killed by police um, was much higher for indigenous people, um, African-Americans and Latinx people. One of the main problems and the re-traumatizing experiences for the community is that of all these killings, very, very, it's very rare for there to be any accountability or justice. In 2016, the community amount around Mario Woods, the Justice for Mario Woods Coalition, as well as the family of Mario Woods, asked me to conduct a research study. So I'm not a researcher um, and um, I am completely committed to taking care of my community. So I agreed. And their research question they posed to me is, could you design a study that shows what happens to our health if a police killing is the wound and the medicine is justice? What happens when the medicine is withheld from us? And so I worked with Dr. Sonia McKenzie, who is a um, researcher at Santa Clara University, as well as Liz Provost from San Francisco um, State, as well as um, students from UC Berkeley to conduct this justice study. We're wrapping up the um, review of the data right now and we'll be writing up our findings um, within the next month. Um, so what we found is that everyone basically is traumatized um, with um, having experienced or witnessed police violence with black and brown um, people most impacted. Um, especially African-Americans who witnessed police violence had um, higher rates of poor health, self-rated self poor health. We also see that even though every race is traumatized, the areas of life that are impacted um, most impact people of color compared to white folks. And why this is important is because we know that exposure to trauma and being re-traumatized um, leads to chronic stress. And chronic stress, we are now understanding further, leads to chronic low-grade inflammation. Many of the diseases that we treat in the hospital um, at the end stage are diseases that have at their base a degree of low-grade inflammation. And so it makes me wonder as a clinician how much police violence is contributing to the, um, to the experience of um, the disproportionate rates of suffering from these diseases from especially Black and Latino communities and Indigenous communities. Looking at COVID, um, this, this data becomes actually more important um, as we know that um, inflammation, under, underlying um, low-grade inflammation is potentiating the expression of the disease. The medical professionals in the streets really legitimize um, the, um, the struggle of people who see this as an impediment to their health, and we're, we're seeing those voices rise all over the country. Um, I'm going to refer you, I've included in this slide, which will be available as a PDF, we'll upload to the Do No Harm Coalition website. Um, a link to the APHA um, policy statement on police violence. There's a lot of great people doing um, research around this issue around the country. Uh, one of the other needs for uh, medical professionals to show our solidarity on the streets is because during police riots, uh, traditional EMS is not allowed to respond into protest situations unless police deem that situation secure. So this has prevented and caused exacerbation of injuries at protests around the country and around the world. So this is one of the main reasons emergency medical or street medics are doing what we do uh, because you know, EMS will not go there. And we'll talk later about how you may need to evacuate your patients out of the protest area to be able to get them to EMS transport. I also think it's important as a respectful way of addressing diversity of tactics. Uh, 
as a Lakota matriarch, uh, Deborah Whiteclue has taught me, the, uh, there's a painting of the Battle of Greasy Grass, the Battle of Little Bighorn, wherein the mirror focus is a young Lakota warrior who's holding just fresh horses, watching the battle go on. Uh, and she points out that 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 brave warrior is just as necessary as every single warrior out actively fighting the cavalry, because him holding the fresh horses for those warriors to switch out is just as necessary as those warriors going back out to battle. Uh, as is that analogy, uh, street medics, radical journalists, radical lawyers, are people who come out, people who share food with demonstrators. It is not just the people in the street we see. And so it's this broad coalition, this multifaceted that make us strong. Um, now we're going to talk about some preparations uh, you can make before uh, uh, going out into the street. Um, first, you want to identify someone who won't be going with you. Uh, uh, to make sure that they are a point of contact, they uh, know your legal information, they might be holding some bail money for you if you, you inadvertently end up arrested. Uh, they know if you have medical conditions or if your cat or dog needs to be fed, your plant needs to be watered, your boss needs to be called, all that good stuff. You want someone to have your back back home. Oftentimes in these larger mobilizations, the National Lawyer Guild or Grassroots Legal Aid will provide legal support uh, those phone numbers will be made based on locality, uh, and it's advised to use a Sharpie or other permanent marker to write that on places in your body. Usually, you want to write that in at least two places on your body, preferably places that are not readily identifiable or visible because people have been arrested simply for having a legal support number written on their arm. Buddy system. Buddies save lives. This is true in frontline healthcare, in EMS work, in the military. If you're hiking, you want a buddy. See, one of the best ways to figure out if uh, uh, the person you want to go to the protest with is appropriate is using this tool right here that we have up, Rival. It speaks about the roles. Is someone going to be the primary leader? Is someone going to primarily be coordinating maps or uh, intelligence that may be coming through Twitter or other avenues? Uh, ID. Are we going to be carrying our IDs? What are our identities? Are we going out marked very clearly as uh, medical professionals in nearly our work uniforms? Or are we going out dressed uh, more like the average demonstrators so we don't get targeted? Vulnerabilities. Do you have any vulnerabilities your buddy should be aware of? Are you allergic to feet? Do you have a bad knee or bad ankle? Are you terrified of dogs? Do you have asthma? These are vulnerabilities y'all should check in with to see whether or not, you know, you can support each other and uh, your goals uh, uh, are compatible. Which brings us to A, aspirations. What are we trying to get done? Are we trying to carry just tons of water out there? It's a hot day. The best use we can do is preventative medicine. They're going to make sure everyone stays hydrated. Cool. Are we going to try and be gas masked, helmeted, ready to dive in there and save uh, uh, demonstrators who've been critically injured. If you don't have the same plans, if someone's planning on running towards the chaos, if someone's planning on going home if there's chaos, probably not going to be good buddies. You should talk to someone else. Loose ends. What else might come up? 
you know, I can only be out till 2 a.m. because, like, that's when my babysitter's done. So if things look like it's going to be hard to go home, we're going to have to go home early. It's like my babysitter's not going to do it. Someone needs to, like, feed my cat. Someone needs to call my partner and tell them that, like, I'm in trouble. What are those loose ends that might come up? And ideally in that buddy system in the streets, I know lots of y'all are medical professionals, uh, and you're usually used to working uh, in calmer environments where you can wander away and you don't need the buddy system. But in these situations, we want to be just about in hand-holding distance. Uh, if there's pushy, pushy, shovey, shovey going on, you want to be holding on to your buddy's uh, backpack or vest or shirt collar so y'all don't get separated. Y'all want a, a medic without their buddy in the streets is, you know, a medic who's likely going to jail. It's also important as medical professionals that we understand the Good Samaritan law. Uh, I'm going to put a disclaimer right here. I'm not a lawyer. This is not legal advice. Check your local ordinances on this. But there are several generalities that are pretty universal in Good Samaritan laws uh, uh, across the country in the U.S. Uh, first is that you are not uh, expecting uh, compensation. You're not being paid. Uh, that you are not treating outside your scope of practice. Uh, so this usually, for many of us, restricts it to BLS interventions. Uh, uh, and that you do not abandon your patient. Uh, so that goes to uh, transfer of care and transferring care only to uh, people who are equally or greater trained than yourself. Mostly with these Good Samaritan laws, these help keep uh, most medical workers safe from any liability. And there's never been any instance that I'm aware of of a street medic being uh, litigated against for care they've provided during uh, contest uh, conflictual uh, uh, protests or injuries that have been treated in those situations. Uh, you got to decide again, looking at your aspirations, are you going to be more of a frontline medic? Or are you going to uh, uh, be more of a street clinician than a street medic? Uh, street clinicians are, are folks who may be setting up a static position in a park or maybe an alley or a friendly business that allows them to do uh, uh, not just first aid but secondary care, take better time with splinting, better time with assessing injuries, longer with decontamination. Our frontline medics are usually going to be near the front line, usually within 50 feet of the front line protesters, there's, they're going to be the ones who are more likely going to help facilitate the transport of patients out of tear gas, out of a, uh, a conflict situation with uh, specific carries, uh, and able to uh, bring them to those more static positions, to those, those areas of continuity of care, so to speak. Uh, and these are both important. This is why uh, it's good to check in before things get all crazy. It's good to know uh, a rival just for your buddy system, but if you're working in a bigger group, who's going to be where? Who's going to be uh, with y'all in the front? Who's going to be with y'all in the back? Because you're going to pack your kit pretty differently for this. Um, and I think I'm going to stop there and let Rupa start uh, discussing uh, how you can outfit yourself. Thank you, Noah. Um, so I tend to be, I have two young children. I have to show up at work, can't get arrested. Um, I don't really want to get arrested. Um, 
I wrote a song about that actually. Um, and, and so for me, my, um, there's no right and wrong about how you participate as a medical provider, um, whether you're working directly with um, more frontline street medics, people like Mo Noah who have that experience or whether you're creating a makeshift clinic um, farther beyond or in a static location so that you can help with triage and getting people out and then out to EMS if needed. Um, for myself, I prefer that more static position and for one reason, because it's what I'm used to in as a, it's where I'm most effective. Um, and and um, yeah, so it's just finding where your comfort is and finding where your utility is, how you can best serve, and then partnering with people who have different skill sets. Like I don't have Noah's skill set, so partnering with him at Standing Rock was um, very powerful um, and with all the frontline medics. So this is a, um, let's talk about um, what to wear. So this is a picture of a Hong Kong uh, protester showing us his gear, um, his or her gear. And it's um, a really, um, you know, this is a, when things are gonna be ugly, this is what you wanna do. Um, so you wanna be wearing, um, you know, full coverage um, clothes because the chemicals, uh, weapons that are used are skin irritants. Um, you could consider wearing scrubs and your lab coat, um, symbols of our profession, which I think, like I said, um, can help the, the visualization, I think, of our society and also the police that there are medical professionals out there um, assisting. Um, but you want to be nimble. You want to be wearing shoes you can really run in. Um, this is COVID, um, so I would recommend all medical providers wear N95 masks. Um, in, if you're going to be in a dicey situation, you might want to wear a full face covering um, to, avoid, um, to avoid facial recognition technology. Some people um, advise bringing your badge in your pocket in case you get accosted or stopped by the police that you can show that you are a medical professional there in service of people. Um, there is also a recommendation to consider wearing heat resistant gloves or having them available in case there is, um, you know, some of the stun grenades or canisters that are um, projected towards you. Um, what not to wear is ear, are contact lenses um, and makeup. So goggles, if you're highly recommend so that you don't, um, so that you remain effective in the cloud of um, tear gas, as well as a, um, a helmet um, to avoid being bludgeoned, um, which sadly happens more frequently. What to bring? Um, so um, that again depends on where you're going to be. So no, you want to talk about this? Yeah. So especially if you're going to be uh, up near the front where you're likely going to be dealing with a lot more just eye flushes, quick kind of treat them and street them situations or uh, stabilize and move them to continuity of care. Uh, you don't really need the broadest uh, diversity of supplies. You're going to want to have loads and loads of gloves, especially now because we're seeing lots of people doing eye flushes, especially in the time of COVID. We want to be changing those gloves in between uh, uh, every single eye flush. Um, you know, our mask and our personal protective equipment. We want to have either our respirator, uh, gas mask, whatever you feel comfortable with that we can uh, speak elsewhere uh, to, to specifics on, on gas masks and stuff like that. Uh, you want to have just like loads and loads of simple bandages for, for bleeding control, uh, you know, change of clothes, uh, 
tied up in a bag so when you leave you can like change out of your gear so you're not wandering around in chemical weapons all day um some light snacks like loads and loads of water as much water as you can carry um um, both for yourself and for being able to do eye flushing. Certainly in some of these situations, uh, uh, you know, it can be hard to resupply or refill water bottles. Um, you want a good water bottle uh, uh, with a nice good sports top uh, for your eye flushing and a separate container for your uh, uh, drinking water. Uh, if you're going to be doing more of the clinical um situation aside from just the the kind of ppe the uh which is kind of some basic list we have here here uh you know at the clinical situation you can can have some more of the uh, what we sometimes call authority drag you know you're in your lab coat you're in your scrubs you're in uniform um uh signs clearly marking the area as a medic station um, you know, uh, this person, no protective equipment. Uh, these are all great things, uh, uh, to have, uh, I would even include a helmet these days since we're seeing a lot of headshots from law enforcement, uh, uh, with their rubber bullets and kinetic rounds. Um, for our decontamination, uh, at some of these situations, we'll have a real static uh, a clinic site that we'll set up, and usually outside, we'll set up a decontamination station that'll have uh, changes of clothes uh, and cold water, uh, maylocks, different things to remove chemical weapons from uh, the surface of the skin to decontaminate people before we move them into indoor facilities. So we don't want to contaminate those indoor treatment spaces. Uh, just like many of you who might work in emergency departments, you sometimes have to send someone through a decon room before they come in to be treated. Uh, same setting for, for our field clinic, um, especially if our field clinic is in a church or something. Don't want don't to contaminate the church anymore. Um, Sudicon wipes. Uh, Sudicon wipes are a commercially available product that's largely used by law enforcement. Uh, we kindly had a organic chemist who uh, reverse engineered it for us. And so we have the recipe, which is included later in the PowerPoint. Uh, so you can make these your own, and that's a lot cheaper. Um, as for decontamination, one of the other good things to do is not get it on you. So having either like a, a quick poncho, uh, one of those pocket ponchos to be able to put on yourself so that uh, your base layer doesn't get uh, as contaminated with weapons to you know, get rid of that, bundle it up, ditch it somewhere in a trash can uh, for later. Um, especially if you're being a, a clinician, you're going to more likely see some common medical al uh, ailments that may crop up in these situations. Uh, I'm going to let Rupa speak to some of the basic medications you may want to have on hand there. Yes, so some basic meds that we can carry that can be useful in the street, um, in addition to cough drops, which I was very grateful for um, when, when I've been in these situations, um, it's just to hand people, people are usually shouting um, for hours at these events, um, is to have some glucose tabs for diabetics, um, to have some NSAIDs and Tylenol available, definitely Narcan on hand, EpiPen could come in really handy. Um, activated charcoal can also come in handy. Nitro tabs and aspirin. Um, liquid Benadryl um, can also be handy if we're dealing with 
anaphylaxis in the field um, before EMS comes. And then some people are, um, I've worked like Noah uh, now, and um, I've worked with some licensed acupuncturists who um, will be able to do some acupuncture um, in the field, especially around um, trauma and stress as people, um, as people are um, being treated. Um, in terms of wound care, it's sort of a, a more souped up uh, first aid kit we can, we can bring. Um, so gauze, ace wraps, uh, bandage wraps, ABDs, tourniquets. Um, I think it's helpful to have some saline with a 50cc syringe to irrigate uh, wounds, some betadine um, swabs, some alcohol swabs. Dermabonds, I think there's an over-the-counter variety you can get. Um, just want to emphasize that's not super glue, even though they're chemically very similar. Um, it's specifically for skin. Um, bringing some triple antibiotic ointment is good. Um, some Band-Aids and if you can get a, a cold pack. These are all kinds of things that will be more helpful um, um, in, the, in the back line. Noah, do you want to talk about personal personal items? Yeah, uh, so personal items, uh, you know, you want your own like things to help keep you you uh, happy, healthy, and calm. So any favorite, you know, tinctures, aromatherapy stuff you make do, uh, hand sanitizer, we gotta keep our paws washed. Um, if you're someone who menstruates, we recommend uh, not using tampons because there's been instances of chemical weapons wicking with the tampons, but things like diva cups, keepers, um, those kinds of device or menstrual pads seem to be fine uh, and don't carry that same danger of wicking chemical weapons. Uh, baby wipes, you know, if you're out kind of, many of y'all work long shifts in sometimes hot conditions, you know the benefit of a nice baby wipe uh, washed out for yourself uh, uh, to refresh yourself in, in hard times. Uh, uh, again, if you're out in a, a crazy situation, a wild situation like we're seeing in some cities, uh, you might want to consider taking an anti-diarrheal. Uh, when you suddenly realize you've got to poop and there are riot police pushing you and tear gas over here and patients in front of you, that's a really terrible time to have to poop especially if there are no businesses uh, open anymore that will let you in to use the restroom. Uh, so, so considering uh, uh, doing that as a, a personal com comfort option. Um, cough drops, any other snacks. I personally, if it's colder weather, really like candy ginger uh, to help keep me warm. A lot of medics will uh, carry and chew on uh, a Chinese licorice root because it's kind of good for soothing the, the nervous system uh, and the myelin sheathing and it helps uh, uh, minimize the uh, frayed nerves, uh, so to speak. Um, other kind of more diagnostic gear you may want if you're going to be more of the street clinician, you're going to be more interested in having your bee, bee cuff, uh, you're going to want to uh, uh, have a stethoscope for listening to breath sounds, glucometers. We got lots of folks who, you know, might have ended up marching and marching all day and didn't get to uh, 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 their snacks on time. So, you know, we want to make sure that the we got glucometers, check the blood sugar. Again, with COVID uh, and tear gas and the potentiation for reactional asthma uh, to the chemical irritants, we want to pulse ox. Um, and these sorts of other diagnostic equipment can be uh, more useful 
uh, if you're going to be in a more static street clinician role. Uh, I'll also say street clinicians have known to just like set up camp on park benches and like set up space and just the crowd kind of made the walls for them. Uh, so it's uh, uh, important to adapt to your surroundings. Up here's the uh, recipe for the Sudicon. Uh, this creates a liquid that you can soak uh, gauze pads or paper towels in and put in Ziploc bags so you have individual units uh, so you don't potentially mix it up with your eye flush or any other liquids you may be carrying. Thank you. Thank you, Noah. Um, we're now going to, and we'll see there's uh, many, many questions, so we're excited we're going to leave a good half hour to address the, the, the questions. So we're now going to review this concept of situational awareness. Um, so this is how I'm used to practicing in a static physical setting. I work as a hospitalist at UCSF. These are um, people treating COVID patients. Um, this is a stock photo. Actually, this one was from um, the New York Times. Um, so I'm used to being in a static physical setting um, where um, there are known resources, there are known concerns for patient safety, and also relatively known concerns for my, um, my personal safety as well as the patient safety. So the, the, the controlled environment of the hospital setting is something that I'm, I'm very used to and I'm, I'm very comfortable with. Um, this is a very different situation and can um, provide, you know, it can be very anxiety producing for someone like me who's used to a static situation. The reason we think this training is useful is that being, um, sharing this information with what to expect can help you plan better how to situate yourself and how to prepare. So in the street setting, the, the setting is constantly fluid. And it's constantly fluid in intensity. So it can go from being calm to chaotic in seconds. There's also shifting resources. So, you know, you're someone who had um, one of the medic team groups that had a certain thing might be, you know, walking away or have been picked up by the police. So you don't necessarily have all the things that you wish you would um, at your disposal. That's why it's important to prepare as best you can, um, depending on where you're going to be positioning yourself. Concerns for the patient and concerns for yourself are also major issues here because um, it's not that you're just focused on the patient, which you can do in a hospital. Um, you have to focus on the surroundings at the same time um, because those will pose constant threats to your physical safety and the, um, the patient's physical safety. And that is probably um, the biggest place of training um, that, that you can you know, just be, 